It is my extreme pleasure today to share with you my interview with Lars Emmerich. I've mentioned him several times over the past couple of months. He is the founder of Ammo uh, Foundations, Ammo uh, Acceleration. I think that there are other parts of the Ammo program, but it actually stands for Author Marketing Mastery Through Optimization. See, I had to pull it out of my head. Um, uh, acronyms are always difficult, but uh, many of you know that I have uh, tried numerous different marketing avenues, and I'm not going to repeat any information that's in this interview. So go ahead and listen in uh, and you'll hear all about my journey for paid marketing coaching and uh, everything that I've experienced because honestly, this whole episode should act as a sales pitch for you to join Ammo if you're at a point in your career where you feel like you'd like to be a full-time author. Uh, this is the way, a way, it is the way. Um, I've heard from many of you in private conversations that there's no one-size-fits-all kind of uh, marketing thing to get your books out in the hands of readers, and I'm here to tell you that's not the case. This will work for any author. Uh, we have people in the program, and listen, first and foremost, let me just tell you, I do not get any kind of compensation or kickback if you join the program. I'm just an avid fan who happens to have found something that works. I, I always think that in the back of the people's minds, they're like, oh, you know, Jody will stand a benefit if uh, I join Ammo. So listen, don't even tell Lars that you you came because you heard this podcast episode. Just keep it a complete secret. Don't let him know anything about it if you choose to join because I don't want you to feel like this is a sales pitch because I get something. This is a sales pitch because as authors, it's really, really difficult to make a living doing what we're doing and this is the way. Now, I do want to put a big asterisk in there. You have to lay out a good amount of money to take this program. Um, for me, it's a, a reasonable amount of money. It's not going to break the bank or, or take food out of my family's mouth. For you, it may be something where you have to be creative with finances to figure out a way. And I'm not going to give any financial advice to anybody, but I can say, uh, based on my experience, if you have more than three novels, especially if they're in a series, and you have uh, more books coming out, it is my strong belief that anybody in that situation who can write a complete sentence and a decent story and feel strongly that their work will be loved, you can make a living doing this program within a year's time. And so the reason I say it that way is um, I've advocated in the past for, for putting stuff on a credit card and kicking that can down the road until your, your uh, profits catch up with you and that that this would be a situation where I would do that. I haven't actually done it yet, but I did just order a credit card that has 0% interest for 12 months. So uh, we know how I'm going to be spending my money. I really believe in this process. Okay, there you go. That is the really upfront sales pitch for author marketing mastery through optimization and Lars Emmerich. And last but not least, let me go ahead and give you my numbers so far, because what would a podcast episode about this be any good if you didn't get raw data. Here it is. Okay, so far, I've been in the program for just about a month, actually in running my sales funnel. I'm not going to talk about the costs of the different programs that I use to get the data I need to become more appealing to my ideal customer. I'm only going to talk about ad spend. So far in ad spend, I've spent 400 
$1,278. That may sound like a lot to you, but I have sold 90 books and I have netted $284.70. So I am reaching 90 readers in a month and I earn $284 doing that. There's more to this system than I can say, but what I will tell you is that I am nowhere near getting the kind of conversion rates that other people in this program do. I'm still so early in the process that it's frankly amazing that I've sold as many books as I have. And also, let me tell you that I am doing this with pre-order books. So there's a huge strike against me is that I'm only actually delivering one book to anybody who buys right now. The other two books will be delivered upon publication later. And so when people look at my site, they always will see that. And that probably has some effect on how well I'm able to sell. So if you have three books out right now, imagine how much better you could be doing than I am doing. And yet I'm really happy with the fact that I've only paid out about $200 at this point to the ad spend itself and seeing where this can go. I'm really excited. We're only talking eBooks right now. That's uh, something that's important. And again, I don't want to reiterate too much of what's in the episode, but this is for eBooks only. You can run a similar system with paperbacks, with audiobooks. I have an audiobook being made right now. I'm really excited to announce who the reader is going to be because a lot of you, if you listen to audiobooks, will know this lady. She's an amazing performer, but I don't have a contract signed yet. I have a verbal agreement. Uh, and, and so I, just in case anything backs out, I don't want to have announced something and be like, well, <laughs> it fell through. Um, but audiobooks, uh, print books, ebooks. I haven't started to even market two avenues of this journey and, and I'm doing pretty well. So I really see in the very near future being a profitable author, a full-time author, somebody making good money. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's where I want to leave this right now. Lars is a great guy. Uh, <laughs> the first time that I met him, I, I, well, met, I sent him a long email and I said, listen, buddy, I have tried everything out there to sell books and nothing has really worked. So here's my situation. Should I even waste my time joining a program? And, and you know, like I laid my guts out on a, a wax paper platter and like, just tell me, you know, that you heard me. And, and literally his whole response was, uh, I don't see any red flags here. I was enraged. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, that's all? Uh, you're asking me to join this program on faith uh, and put all the money into the program and you just, you don't see any red flags? I was, it, it was a really a moment. It was a moment. Um, he is a really direct, really frank kind of character. And uh, I, I've come to appreciate that on the calls that I've been on in the program because it takes away the emotional edge. I don't know about you as an author, but I'm really emotional about my product. If people don't like it, it hurts. Uh, if people have a copy of the book and they don't read it, I'm, I'm bummed, uh, especially, well, if I know them, I'm bummed. Otherwise, it's kind of like dollars and cents. But, you know, I am very emotional about it. And this program helps to take out the emotion. It gives you really specific benchmarks and ways to reach and uh, curate your audience so that it, everything is profitable and, and you can scale up. Uh, yeah. Please enjoy my interview with Lars Emmerich. Oh, and also 
<laughs> I will have all of the information for how you can connect with Ammo, how you can buy Lars's books if, if his genre sounds interesting to you. Everything Lars will be in the show notes, so do make sure to drop into the show notes. If you're not on my Substack mailing list already, why not? Because you get an actual email twice a week when I drop episodes that has the nitty-gritty, all of the great stuff in there, the stuff that if you're missing out on it, you're really not getting the full TRBM experience. So again, please enjoy my interview with Lars Enrich. If you've ever watched an author read in public and felt bored, TRBM's The Antidote. TRBM is for writers what time-lapse was for painters. Guitar solos and spotlights were for bands. What chainsaws and ice blocks were for sculptors. What does TRBM stand for? Tiny roses bloom mildly? Taboo rituals being mastered. Torture requires better methods. You decide. I started my process. I left my W-2 job and thought, come hell or high water, I'm going to be a full-time author. I can make this happen. I've got enough reserves of cash to do this because of some kind of good financial habits early in my life. And then I spent the first year being self-employed, building this marketing podcast. And it was right around January that I thought, I'm writing less than I ever have before. Uh, I'm reading less than I ever have before. And I see no viable option to be a full-time author. I do see a viable way to maybe make money as a marketing podcaster about books, except I haven't published a book. And so I don't have that authority to tell people how to do something I myself haven't done. So the question here is, how are you able to do ammo and be a writer do you feel that there's a, a, a love conflict there at all? Oh yeah, it's not just a love conflict. It's a it's a uh, different way of being when I'm working on a business project with four thousand little details and um, the pressure of having money on the line every day in advertising. And, and that's it's not just uh, in ammo. It's also the advertising process for my novels, the business aspect of it is it employs a, a completely different aspect of my, my brain, inside of my brain, an aspect of my personality. And um, because it feels so immediate and so urgent, it always feels top of mind. And it's an effort, um, both in terms of building space in my schedule to do this, to, to write or to do creative things. And it's also an effort to give myself permission to do this um, less urgent, less immediate thing, working on a story. Um, one of the ways that I, uh, that I have helped myself along that route, and I'm not by any stretch perfect at it, look at my productivity compared to somebody like, um, well, look at Dawson, for example, Mark Dawson. Uh, he writes about twice as many books as I do. Mm. But he also has James Blatch to run his business, you know, yeah. run the, 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 you know, the, the outreach side of his business. And I think also a big portion of the administrative, um, you know, tasks for his business as well. Mm -hmm. But it, it helps me to recall that in the moment when I feel like these 17 ad advertising or marketing tasks are taking precedence and I, it really feels like an indulgence and maybe even a, uh, you know, maybe even like a waste of my time, quote unquote, in this particular moment to go sit down and spend six hours working on a novel. But that's what makes the whole thing go. 
It's what at the yeah. end of the day makes the business move forward. And the lead time to produce the new products is so great that you have to stay focused throughout the whole thing. But it like, mm-hmm. it feels like such a long distance goal mm-hmm. when, you know, to complete the novel, even if you're on a schedule where you're writing a novel every, you know, four, eight, 12 weeks or so, that still feels farther than uh, looking after the ad money you have at risk today. Right. Yeah. So that's, I would never tell anybody I have this dialed in or I have, a, mm. you know, I've perfected a process because I just haven't is the, mm. is the bottom line. <laughs> the, yeah. the best I can do is schedule time on the calendar and then force myself to stick to it and sit down and get into the groove and in, enjoy the process. Yeah. So uh, so many things to unpack there. One, I really relate to what you were saying, and it's really personal for me at the moment. As of Thursday uh, of this past week, I saw this really good forward progress with using the ammo prog- program to sell my eBooks. And I was having enough success that I felt like, okay, I'm not profitable yet, but I see the trajectory. And then Thursday, inexplicably, something broke. I couldn't figure out what happened, but no purchases. And we go all the way up to Sunday. And I'm not telling you that <laughs> to have you assess the problem. We'll talk about that later. But I am telling you that to say that immediately on Thursday, when I, I noticed the problem starting to occur, it became really difficult for me to write my novel. I stopped yeah. wanting to do the thing I loved because I was like, I, the tagline for this podcast, in fact, is what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening or nobody's reading? <laughs> um, and, right. So that's exactly yeah. what mode I go into is crisis mode. Um, and those ad dollars make it very real. There's money going out. And if nothing's coming back in, it you feel it in a way that uh, it's like playing poker with M&Ms, you know, if, if, you, if there's no money on the line, you just don't vibrate the same way. Yeah, that's a um, that's a really big insight. And it never gets better. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> whether you're risking $50 a day or $5,000 a day, it's it's still a risk. And I, I, I've, I've got a friend named uh, Rishi and Rishi is uh, he's a Silicon Valley veteran of a couple of decades and marketing is his game. And he oversees $800 million a year in marketing spend. And he says, it doesn't matter if you have a thousand dollars a day at risk or a million dollars a day at risk, it feels the same. Mm. The emotional response is the same. So um, that is a, that's a fact of life. And that's a fact of doing business, not just in our business, but I think in any business, the second key. And so what's the takeaway? We have to become comfortable with, having something at risk. Um, yeah. And if there were a way to, to build a business without putting money at risk in marketing and advertising, mm-hmm. you know, I would be all over it. <laughs> it just yeah. doesn't seem, you know, it, the feedback loop is way too long to know if you're on the right track with it, with the free methods mm-hmm. and they just don't work. You just can't, yeah. you know, you can make a few bucks here and there, but you can't make a, a career, career income out of it. The second really interesting thing is, just that phenomenon where it's gangbusters for a couple of days and then it's crickets mm-hmm. and you feel like, gosh, something must have been, something must have broken. There must be something wrong in the universe or, you know, one yes. of my web tools is not working, but it turns out that the nature of business is that it's not like the steady paycheck that right. uh, your company used to, used to issue you. And we, as much as we need to go do our own thing, we also really like that clockwork security of a yes. paycheck showing up at the same, no matter if the day is good or bad, the weeks were good or bad, the paycheck is the same. Mm-hmm. There's something uh, psychologically very comforting about that, that 
Yeah. But in a business where you're making your own way, it um, doesn't matter what business that is. And ironically, even in those big businesses that employ people and give them regular biweekly paychecks, when you're making decisions in that business, it's the mm-hmm. same. It's the same. Exactly. Just for famine. And, yep. But worse, because now you're looking after these dozens or hundreds or thousands of people. And yeah. so the same thing happens where it feels nice and smooth down at the employee level when the paychecks mm-hmm. come in, but it's just not smooth at all yeah. in, the, in the grand scheme. So that, those are important in, insights, and that points to the personal development, psychological awareness, the set of skills that let you do what you know you need to do despite the ups and downs, because the emotions are real. Let's step one step back and take a moment to talk about some differences that I've experienced because um, I have actually been part of and had conversations with uh, the self-publishing formula. So never Mark Dawson, but I've talked to James Blatch a little bit, had some conversations with him. And I think it's a great program for a lot of people. I didn't see that there was the marriage of, of philosophy with technique in that program. So they can talk to you a little bit about building your, your Facebook ads, but there wasn't just this like concrete testing method that made the program really effective. Um, and then you, I imagine you're also aware of self-publishing school with Chandler Bolt. Uh, I, I even ran some ad promo for them for a campaign they were doing this last summer. Um, and I, I like that guy pretty well, but in the end, it's all based on on Amazon and selling your first ten thousand copies. And there's just zero real concrete "this will work" type of stuff. So, uh, and then I also was part of um, Russell Brunson's ClickFunnels. And um, that's the first time I've ever asked for a refund. They said there was a refund. I wanted to join. I had a good idea that it could work. But when I got inside, they they have these cool tools to build the website and to teach you like you need to drive traffic to this landing page. But there was no guidance on how to build that ad. And what I found is that I sank really fast, sunk a bunch of money into an ad that failed. I didn't know how to build it. And then I found you. And what was so really appealing about your program was that you married the the philosophy, hey, there's a real possibility that you can be a full-time author with here is the way to sell ebooks. I haven't gotten to the the paperbacks, but I think that's what is so great about ammo and the reason that I will be recommending it to every author I know who who can possibly afford to start the program because there's a financial um outlay that goes into it. But man, kudos to you for seeing the need to build a program where you could actually coach people through the baby steps along the way. Have you noticed that before? I don't, I'm not asking you to, uh, to talk about anybody else's program, but have you noticed that a lot of programs maybe have a bunch of philosophy, but not a lot of concrete um, steps? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that endorsement. I really appreciate it. Yes. What I have noticed about the other uh, programs out there that, that I, have, I, I haven't taken all of them, I've taken a good number of them. What I found to, to be my impression is that there, as you say, there is a lot of um, technical discussion about which websites to go to, where to click, what to paste where, but there wasn't a whole lot on what I should actually be saying <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm writing these ads or what should I show people when I'm making, putting an image in the ad or um, what should I say in the email and how do I know if it's working and um, how can I diagnose what's broken and where? Because yeah. 
with customers' journey includes you know a number of stops along the way, and there are all sorts of psychological uh, milestones that we need to hit in order to uh, demonstrate to somebody who might be an ideal customer for us that a we're legitimate, b they're not the first to try this, and other people have read these books and um, they have enjoyed them. And here are the testimonials, and you know here's the structure of the offer so that you can make an informed buying decision. There's a lot that goes into what to say hmm. and how to evaluate whether or not that's working. I didn't really find that in uh, the more just sort of, um, I would say, procedural instruction mm-hmm. for how to procedurally set things up, but didn't really discuss the, the marketing aspect of, of the content that needed to fit in these different spaces on the internet. Yeah. And it turns out that that that's a, with so many variables involved, even in a basic advertisement, there's a ton of variables at play. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a way to pull those variables apart and test each one methodically and in a, in a systematic way so that you can have confidence that what you're putting in front of people is likely to work. I get now, it seems utterly crazy to me to, build a whole funnel mm-hmm. and then start testing, right? Yeah. So you have soup to nuts all the way to check all the pages, all the emails, everything built, ready to go. And you flip the switch and this is the classic situation. You flip the mm-hmm. switch and nothing happens. Yeah. Nothing happens. Um, and you, you, you don't know what's broken mm-hmm. because everything's a little bit broken. So it, it really is important to take a methodical approach. It's much, it feels much slower in the beginning but it winds up being much faster in the end because at each step you're building along on top of knowledge and results that, that you proved out by testing in the prior step. So we find a much higher success rate. Nothing works for everybody. Nothing works for anybody forever. People need to keep that in mind. But uh, the fundamental is if you, if you want to serve people, you have to understand where they are and how they're thinking about things so that you can meet them where they are and show them what you have. Yeah. So I think that that was a need in the marketplace that uh, fortunately we're able to fill. Your, your program is so, so different than the other programs too. And that, um, I made the exact mistake you're talking about, even in your program. Um, I looked at my wife and I said, well, I can't see any reason to build all these tools. If uh, I'm going to run an ad and nobody's going to even have an opportunity to buy, I didn't, even though I watched your videos, I had so much context in my my mind. I was like, why would I waste ad dollars if I can't have like, even even if it's a 0.1% chance that someone might click that ad and then go through and buy. So I did build my landing page. I did build my Shopify store. I did all of those things before mm-hmm. I ran my color block testing. And then it dawned on me. There's a reason for the order here. And I felt stupid and I felt sheepish and a little bit embarrassed, but it did give me the good opportunity. There's another gentleman in the program right now who's newer and, and came to me asking a lot of questions. And I was like, trust me, you need to start running your color block right now. You need to get those taglines going because everything else you build predicates on knowing the right language to say to people. And as soon as I just went backwards and did what you told me to do, uh, it I could see the immediate progress. But the one thing I want to say, too, and then I'm, I'm ready to kind of move on into a couple of other places is 
because you create the baby steps where for people who are listening and don't know a lot about the program, the first really measurable step that you take in ammo is to build an ad on Facebook where you're just going to run for click traffic to see what people are interested in. And you pick a tagline that you think people might be interested in. And you run 10 taglines simultaneously uh, and you see which one people respond to. Um, and Oddly enough, even though you're like, okay, I'm going to spend $30 for a day. I don't know if it has to be 30, but that's kind of what the video said. That's how I did it. I immediately start to see what ideas resonate and that feels like a victory. So it feels like $30 well spent because now I know my market. And each day that I did that, I didn't mind parting with my money. Whereas when I ran ads with ClickFunnels, it really bothered me to watch that money go because I wasn't learning anything except that nobody was clicking on my stupid video. <laughs> so yeah. um, I think that's a really big deal. And and the other reason that this has been nice, I, I am definitely a convert. I'm very biased in, in your favor. Um, so what I want to ask you. you now, yeah, yeah, for sure. What I want to ask you is about your, your books. Uh, I, you laughed when I said, what's the point of, of telling stories if no one's listening. So I think that you've gone through that. Talk to me a little bit about the philosophy you have when you started writing. I know that there's military background, and and so I'm really interested to hear some of the analytics mixed with the emotion that goes into writing fiction. Mm. I uh, I began well. I, I've always been a writer, one way or another. Um, a lot of what I did in the F-16 world was was being an instructor. Was, a lot of that material is quite academic and. Um, very involved and you need to find ways to tell a story around it so that it lands with people so that they don't go get killed. I mean, it was, you know, it was an important, it was, you know, an important job. And so I sort of leaned on the, the storytelling and, and writing ability. Um, when I, when I came toward the end of that career, I was looking for something else to do. I was still traveling quite a bit, but in the process of making that transition, I, uh, began writing professionally for for businesses to help them with with their sales processes to help them with um, it's basically marketing copy that I, that I wrote and uh, I did that quite well and was quite successful at it but it just wasn't terribly fulfilling I mean I think one of my major clients was uh, they were they were into sewage treatment so I was doing a lot of writing about sewage treatment. <laughs> processes and techniques and um it wasn't floating my boat from a a meaning and this is this my highest calling here on the planet <laughs> writing writing <Yeah>. literal shit <laughs> <laughs> exactly right this is how we treat yeah exactly so um and i i had forever in my mind had this idea that i would want to write something tom clancy-esque you know, he was mm. sort of my first, he was my first glimpse into this big sprawling thriller world where all these different mm. stories weave together in these big thick books. And I just loved the intrigue and the way that nothing was really as it appeared. And these seemingly meaningless details early on would come to be the deal breaker at the end. And, um, and so at the time, Kindle Unlimited and, and Kindle, uh, were starting to be a thing. So it, there seemed to be a way that people could actually do this for real in a way that wasn't really available before. So I, um, I just started writing, started writing thrillers. Instead of writing about sewage treatment, I was writing, you know, in my hotel writing or on airplanes, um, writing thrillers. Hmm. And that's, uh, that's how it came about. 
um, my first few rounds of editing were extremely valuable to me. They were, hmm. um, they were an education process in and of themselves. I mean, I think in a, in a three month, three or four month span, I became three or four times the writer I started as, you know, and just yeah. because you, you don't know what you don't know. So that's how it began for me. The funny thing mentioning Clancy is that it's interesting how times change. I, I went back to, tr- to reread some of his stuff. I think I started reading the Cardinal of the Kremlin, you know, big, thick, big, thick book. And I was excited and I dove in and I got to about page 70 and I realized nothing is happening. <laughs> I'm, I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> it's funny that this is what got me started. And now mm-hmm. I can't, re- I, I can't read it because it's mm-hmm. just not, you know, the, the, uh, the, Genre standards today are of much quicker pace and a much mm-hmm. faster story. But yeah, that's sort of the, the origin story. I went from writing about poo and sewage treatments to <laughs> writing about, <laughs> about spies. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, I like that process. And so in one sense, you didn't necessarily think from like a, an early age, you were necessarily going to be writing fiction. Writing was a part of your life. You had a knack for it. But it was it was sort of later that you uh, joined the two ideas of your love for writing with your enjoyment of, of novels. Actually, I always wanted to be a novelist when I was 20 something, I actually sat down and wrote my first few chapters. Oh, cool. And, um, you know, they were, that came at a time in my life when I was, when I was about to be exceptionally busy. And so fortunately mm-hmm. nothing happened. I didn't take it any further what would I have had to say at 23 years old? Right. So, um, 20 years, 18, whatever, 15, 16, 18 years later, well, I'd seen a lot and Mm -hmm. had some more things to say. And I think the, I think what gave me permission to kind of pursue it was that there seemed like there was an economic reason now with the advent of independent publishing that, uh, you know, I, I could plausibly tell my wife, I think this could go someplace. And so, you know, you, you should feel okay about my spending hours <laughs> working on this because it might take us someplace, you know? Yeah. That's what really gave me the permission to pursue it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a couple of questions. I don't, I don't even know um, if you've thought about this before, but if you were to be in a room with Clancy and say, Don Winslow, um, do you feel just right from the cuff that you would have their respect as an author based on your really great sales, but also the fact that you're indie. Um, do you see there being a gap right now or is that gone? I think um, whether or not I would have their respect is hard to answer. We, we all grow right. up in, we all grow up in a certain environment and we emerge with certain biases one way or another. I, I think what's uh, an important question to address is like, what, what is the difference between mm-hmm. an independent, an independent author doing well and a traditionally published author doing well? The thing I'll say about traditionally published books is that pipeline works. They produce high quality books. Uh, you know, there aren't many stinkers that come out of traditional publishing houses. So, um, Often when I do read an independent novel or start to, it's clear that it's not the same people working on these books, right? Yeah. You can often tell a quality difference, but there's also a tier of independent writers who have, um, who have developed their, their skill and their sensibility and, and have the editors around them to support this, that they're every bit competitive with the best the traditional publishing has to offer. 
Mm-hmm. I would say that from a business perspective, there really was no, there really wasn't a whole lot in the way of business things for an author to do uh, when under the traditional model where all of the distribution, all of the sales numbers, all of the everything that lives with the, with the publishing house. And the author goes maybe on, maybe today it's on podcasts, maybe it's on television shows, maybe it's, you know, appearances and book signings and a book tour and all of those things. They don't have as much insight into whether that's actually working, mm-hmm. whether that's producing sales. And so um, the business of being a, a successful independent author today, there's a lot more that goes into it, I think, than anybody who, who came up through the traditional uh, publishing model in generations past has really ever had to think about. Yeah. You know, I, we are deep in the weeds on all the fussy details of, you know, what click here and copy this and change this and paste that there and, and seeing the way all the numbers fit together and, and clawing through spreadsheets to see, am I making money or am I not making money? Right. Um, we would just, in the past, if we were traditionally published, we would be waiting, you know, once a quarter to figure out what's going to happen with our career. But we, we have a much more hands-on, I mean, we're actually driving, we're actually driving the car of our career now yeah. in a way that has never been possible before. So I, I think they're different worlds. I yeah. think, um, I think if uh, it, it's so much more today than just writing chops mm-hmm. and a production process. I think your, your effort, like you really have to be sharp and educate yourself and spend time developing skill around how to put your books into the hands of readers at a profit. Mm-hmm. So it's just a different, I think it's apples and oranges. I do too. Yeah, I do too. I, I think about it a little bit because uh, my process was everybody who listens to this podcast knows ad nauseum. I had a literary agent. I was pursuing traditional publishing. I came up through the MFA uh, system. So I read all of the literary, the award winners, that kind of stuff. And yeah. to realize one that I actually felt more of a um, connection to the magical science fiction, plotty action driven fiction. That was my first thing. Like I was reading Stephen King uh, in secret for years because mm. he was so looked down upon by the literary community. And then to eventually have the existential question, like, am I ruining myself by reading his books? Because now I go back and read some of the stuff that I'm told is great. And it's harder for me to pay attention. Is that like, am am I, uh, you know, is it like taking uh, meth or something like that? Like, I'm just, I ruined my pleasure centers or something. Stephen King is meth. (laughs) And so, so I I don't know that I have a, a really clear resolution to that. But to say that if I pick up a great literary book now, I still love it the same way I did. And I still have easy time paying attention. It's just I'm going to gravitate a lot more often toward thrilling type of books. And I think there's more you can do um, to critique culture, even from that perspective. I was going somewhere with this comment, but I lost myself along the way, which happens. Um, Literature versus genre. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think traditional and the prestige, thank you for getting me back on track. The prestige of publishing traditionally still exists in my mind as a thing. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm just curious. Do you think about that or are you, you're just, you're, you're a ways down the road from where I'm at. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on traditional publishing for yourself. Is there prestige in it? I guess because of all of the gatekeepers. Um, I think there's certainly something to that. I think there's also, 
there's also a thrill associated with seeing your title on the end cap in a bookstore or, mm. you know, at the airport when people are buying books to go on the airplane. And those distribution channels are only basically available through traditional publishing. At some point, independent authors grow big and powerful enough career-wise so that they can, you know, the prime example is of penning a distribution deal and not a publishing deal, but distribution only. That's J.K. Rowling. You know, she, she doesn't need a publisher to do those things. She just needs a distributor. Mm-hmm. But that kind of model didn't really exist um, so that the only way to get your books physically in physical spaces was by a traditional publishing. And there certainly is, I mean, it's famously difficult to catch the right person at the right time in their day, at the right time in their week, at the right time in their publishing schedule to have interest in you and push you through the pipeline. Yeah. And there, there is a certain prestige. That's also the path to the New York times list. If you want to be on the New York times list. Um, But there's also like a, there's kind of a dirty secret, if you will, to the, to the traditional publishing route, certainly the top 0.1%, they're doing extremely well. Mm-hmm. And, um, but for everybody else, many, 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 many of the bestsellers that you've read and enjoy, many of the literary award winners still have day jobs. Yes. Still have day jobs. Yeah. Because that model is so, um, well, it's just, it's just been under a lot of economic pressure over the last, mm-hmm. certainly over the last decade. And the way that that uh, business has changed in that period of time, the model is less economically viable, the traditional publishing model for most authors. Yeah. And the opportunity for successful independent authors is 10x the revenue. Um, one of the, I remember this story from, from back in the day, trying to decide if I should pursue a, you know, a traditional publishing deal or go the independent route was uh, Hugh Howey's account of, or Hugh Howey, however you pronounce it, for both ways. Uh, his account of, you know, they, they were really excited to present him with a $50,000 advance. And he was like, you, you realize I'm making that every single month in book sales already. Mm. So what do you, you know, you're not, you're not getting it. This, yeah. this is not making sense economically. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a very small number of authors at the very top, you know, the traditional, traditional publishing is still, yeah. Jillian Flynn, she's doing okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there are still a uh, lottery winners. I like to think of them who are, who are still these, um, like we can sort of project ourselves onto that and, and, yeah. and search for it. I don't think it's like as nearly as economically viable, even when you are traditionally published, you cannot count the number of traditionally published authors who I've spoken with or who are Emma clients who uh, just talked about absolutely nothing happened. The publisher did nothing to move the books. The books didn't move. And then I had to fight for my rights back or or wait them out for the seven year period so that I could actually make some money with these books. So Mm -hmm. like I say, apples and oranges, uh, one world versus another. If you have a strong desire for personal reasons to, to get the affirmation of traditional publishing, by all means, go for it. Don't close your doors, though, because I think if you want to do this uh, professionally, the best path is independently because yeah. the margins are better. Yeah, I will. I will tread carefully with this comment because I, I was never really part of the military. But my understanding is that the closest analogy here would be your commissioned officers versus your NCOs. Um, there's there's always going to be uh 
a bridge between the respect levels. Somehow you feel like um, that. I think the NCOs feel like, hey, I worked my ass off to get to this place and I deserve it. And then there are the commissioned officers who feel like, oh, I went to, to college and I can get much higher up in the ranks and all of the things that go on there. Um, and so there's perceived prestige, whichever side of the fence you're on, I think, in certain ways. Um, I'm not really even asking a question there, just kind of thinking through how I view this at the moment. Um, I had a couple of guests on the show a little while ago. They were the first ones who ever even made me aware that uh, self-fulfillment was a possibility. They were doing it through um, that crowdsourcing platform. I can't think. Brandon Sanderson um, actually picked up their method and ran his four yeah, books. Kickstarter. Pre-order. Kickstarter. Thank you. Yeah. So This was the uh, biggest Kickstarter in Kickstarter history. Yes, by a long shot. And uh, yeah, he, he just it destroyed it for books, I believe. There may have been some bigger ones for like tech, but it, he, he made many, many millions of dollars on Kickstarter. And I think the, the biggest difference there is that they, they immediately go into hardcover self-fulfillment. But when I realized that was an option, I thought, why aren't more people attempting this? Because you actually can control quality even better than if you go with Amazon and let them choose certain options for you. So I really like that. Talk real briefly, because I've only got you for another five minutes and I have so much I wish I could cover. Um, talk real briefly about uh, self-fulfillment and your story there, because I think that's one of the big selling points of Ammo, um, your experience with Amazon and, and why you went to self-fulfillment. Yeah, I wasn't treated all that well. And there, there came a, a time in my relationship with, with Amazon where they had an opportunity to uh, treat me as a human and didn't. And it made me angry and it made me uh, aware of the extent to which I was vulnerable to their moods and their algorithmic, and you know, not to not to belittle the size of their problem. I mean, there are sixty million titles. Who knows mm-hmm. how many million authors? You can't have one live representative to coddle every author en yeah. route to their you know the Kindle platform. You have to do things automatically. And then as soon as you have a platform like that, the next thing is somebody tries to figure out how to game it so that they can, they can, you know, get more money than there's than might otherwise have earned. So for all probably good reasons, I mean, Amazon is the victims of their success, but that doesn't mean that I should, it doesn't mean it makes sense for me to trust them with mm-hmm. my career. Mm-hmm. So I, I got the sense that I need to, I need to bring this under my purview so that, um, if something's not working, I have the data to tell it's not working and I have recourse to try something different in a, in a different way. Yep. So um, selling directly to, to fans, fulfillment is fairly easy on the digital side. Uh, Damon Courtney has built an amazing business called Book Funnel and it helps people uh, to get books onto their reader. If that's what they want, they can also read directly on their, their digital device, also listen to audiobooks. So that Without uh, the book funnel, I mean, before that came online, self-fulfillment was significantly more difficult mm-hmm. electronically. Self-fulfillment, the physical copies, that's um, certainly worth thinking about and developing, but not before you know that you have really good market fit. And you know you have really good market fit because you're selling a lot of ebooks mm-hmm. and you're getting good reviews. And, you know, people are coming back for more and they're bothering you. When's the next one coming out? Come on, get back yeah. to writing. Stop <laughs> sending me these. Get back to writing, right? Yes. Um, you'll know that you've got good market fit. 
And you can then start taking on a bit more financial investment to mm-hmm. buy the inventory if you're going to self-fulfill. Um, it was more economically viable with higher margins to use the print-on-demand companies up until about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing is that their printing costs and their shipping costs have, uh, have grown more prohibitive. So the margins are, the margins are a bit smaller than, uh, than they were before. So now it's, I mean, it used to be that you didn't have to put any financial investment in developing your physical copy book you know, business for hardcovers or, or paperbacks. You just have to get the files professionally formatted and then they wouldn't print the book until a sale occurred, right? That's the whole, the whole point. Mm-hmm. But, but now we're finding that once you know you have market fit, by far the, the better option is to buy a number of copies, enough yeah. copies at a wholesale discount to increase your margins. And each printer has their own, their own tiers and, and self-fulfill whether that's through an assistant who's helping you to box and ship, or if mm-hmm. you're a glutton for punishment and you want to do it yourself, yeah. you can. There's folks doing it both ways uh, mm-hmm. quite successfully. So it's a thing that nobody really dreamed they could do really 10 years ago. Yeah. I really think it's the wave of the future though, because mm-hmm. of the way the cost structures are, are yeah. put together. Okay, I wrote uh, the Nine Lives of Marvin DeLonghi, which is the book that I am uh, the primary book that I'm selling in Ammo right now, uh, because I wanted to be more commercially viable. I'd written literary stuff before that. Um, I knew that it was just going to be a hard road for an unpublished, unknown author. And one of the decisions that I made through the drafting process was that I thought I will catch the market. Uh, at their interest in lead strong female characters. So I intentionally designed a woman who's a strong lead female character. And I intentionally gave her a man's kind of a name. There's a play on words. She's leukemia. Um, so leukemia. Um, and yeah. I, 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 I wanted, I wanted people to feel like here's a really strong woman. It's a male author and all of the fun that came with that. And then I'm interested to hear from you. If there was any thought process similar to that for you, although I don't, I, I think you're more level-headed than I am and probably wouldn't try to catch the market on a whim, um, but you have Sam Jameson. And I think that uh, most people would assume genre and everything that Sam is a dude. They do. They do <laughs> assume that. And I, um, I did pick a, a name that could be either male or female. This I started writing Sam as the main character in basically from the beginning, basically from the beginning. I think I just, I hadn't read any really good thrillers that had starred women. Mm. And I I mean, some of my favorite people on planet earth are women. (laughs) Strong, capable, amazing people. And, uh, and I also like to push buttons a little bit. Um, I, one of my characters was gay at the time and, not because I had a social agenda per se, yeah. but um, I, I mean, it was long before really um, the traction of, of movements for groups that are traditionally marginalized. I guess you could say I was ahead of the head of the curve there, but it was completely by accident. Mm-hmm. I just felt like there might be a mark. Most readers are female. Yeah. And even male readers, I think might enjoy a, 
might enjoy a strong female character. So I wish I could say that I was reading tea leaves and I had forecasted this uh, social turn or trend or whatever, but it was, um, if to the extent that it's worked, it's been accidental. Yeah. Your, your answer doesn't surprise me at all either, though, saying that you kind of like pushing buttons. Um, I, I obviously have not like dived deeply into your, your biography necessarily, but I have listened to several podcasts you've been on and kind of searched you up a little bit on the Internet to get ready for this. So that does lead me into a not exactly connected question, but I'm interested because one of one of the when I when I didn't know who you were. The reason was the Sullivans from the Kickstarter. They were guests on my podcast that I mentioned earlier. They were the first time I'd ever heard of direct fulfillment. When I saw that you were doing that, I thought, okay, that's a like a green light, kind of a good thing. And then you were on some podcasts talking about uh, NFT books, and you've mm-hmm. published your books as NFTs. Uh, I'm a big fan of of Vaynerchuk, and I, I, you know, he's super high on NFTs. So I have a relationship with a, a company called Riedle that I do a little bit of my work as an NFT. It's not gotten really big because there's some glitchy things going on. However, I would love for you to talk a little bit about uh, where you see that market going and why you decided to jump into it. That's a terrific question. So I've uh, published my one of my novels actually two of my novels as as nfts or or digital collectibles or digital property with with uh, a company called book.io and so what they've done is they've they've uh, built a platform that allows you to mint nfts and each one is is um unique it's either cryptographically unique uh, i mean all of them are cryptographically unique but but there's only a certain number of each cover for these books and there's multiple covers that are produced. So Mm. um, it's a really fun process when you mint them, when a customer mints them, it doesn't exist until they have, they've run the transaction. And it's kind of like a lottery because you're hoping you get one of those really rare covers, those really rare editions. And it's useful to get a really rare edition because there's a secondary market Mm -hmm. for this property you own it and you can only read it if you're um, can be proven that you bought the book and then later if you want to sell it you can sell it so it's it's property in a way that digital things have never been property before because you used to be able just to copy and paste mm. and you could make an infinite number of copies at zero price if you wanted to and distribute them to all your friends for free well you can't do that anymore and what that means is that it opens up uh, a new world inside of digital commerce that has never existed before because things weren't really property. In fact, when you buy an ebook from one of the retailers, you're not buying anything but a license to read their right. digital property. And so when, you know, when a retailer goes out of business or whatever, it disappears, the book disappears from your, from your reader mm-hmm. because you never owned it. Mm-hmm. And not that you, everybody wants to reread everything they've ever they've ever read, but there there is something nice about, about owning your yeah. own copy. And if you want to give it to to your friend to read, you can do that. Mm-hmm. You can you know transfer it to them for 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 no fee, or you can sell it to them, or, or whatever you want to do. Yeah. Um, so the utility of it is just that that you can protect copyright. You can produce lots and lots of fun variants uh, for people. Um, if you're an author, um, every time my books change hands, I get a percentage mm-hmm. of that transaction now and forevermore. So for the books that are they're, they're still minting, 
and the minted books are still trading. And so I'm, it's a nice residual income that, uh, that it produces. So yeah. I think it's absolutely, it's, it's here to stay. It's just like any industry in the beginning, uh, people don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of it's being different, they speculate and um, yeah. people think, you know, it, there are people who are starting up projects in good faith with good intentions and they think it's going to do well and it doesn't do well and they have to shut the project down, leaving all of these investors holding the bag. Yeah. Um, and there are unscrupulous people in this world because it's new. It's a gold rush. It's just like dot-com boom where, you know, dog food online was going to be the road to riches or, you know, whatever. And not many companies actually prove that they could demonstrate value, mm-hmm. bring value for their customers. The same kind of thing is happening in the NFT world. This will settle out over mm-hmm. time. It will be back to business as usual, which is if you want to run a business, produce value, <laughs> deliver, and make happy customers. And they'll bring yeah. more customers to your business and you can grow and your marketing will be more effective. So there'll be less, it'll be less hype driven, you know, shortly in the future. And we're mm-hmm. already getting there. I mean, the, yeah. those companies that are hype driven and, and are vaporware, if you will, they're slowly getting weeded out. People are getting arrested who need to be arrested. Right? <laughs> yeah. Those okay, kinds yeah. of things are, are endemic to any new market. But when that dust settles, mm-hmm. I think we'll all be really happy that we have this new digital property option yeah. that we never had before. I spoke to a gentleman who is very, very like he has his finger on the pulse of, of NFTs and especially in the, the, the book world. The one thing he mentioned that made me a little bit nervous is he says he could see the, um, the royalties of being the, the original mentor going away. And I hope that they don't, because I think that that's the one thing that this actually stands to fix about um, not only eBooks, like you talked about with licensing, but also with physical copies of a book. Uh, I love used books. If you, if you were to walk around my house right now, you'd see that there's uh, more than a thousand books. And I would say, 90% 90% of them are used books. I can get them so much cheaper. I like collecting those kind of things. But uh, for the author, it would be nice to take uh, 1% off of every transaction perpetually. Then the person who sells the book still makes plenty of money. There's just plenty of money to go around. And I think it makes for a more robust economy uh, when you get to forever retain your property. I, I really like that a lot. That's probably the biggest thing that got me into it. Another question, and then we have to be done, is have you thought about doing Doing any kind of um, exclusivity with your NFTs where people would get an opportunity to have a night with the author if they have the key for one of those NFTs. Maybe you mint 100 copies of a book and then they get a night with the author. Have you considered any of those elements? I have considered them. And there are folks who are doing, um, they're doing really cool things. They're building out Discord servers and, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're building out experiences for readers to have. And the, the key to open the door to this cool place to hang out is the NFT, is the book itself. The, um, the thing about that is you're building yourself a part-time job at least. Yeah, absolutely. Probably a full-time job, right? So yeah. I have to be very careful these days what I sign up for because I always feel perpetually oversubscribed. Mm. Um, but there certainly is room for creating a really immersive, really cool experience if you have the 
if you if you're partners with the people with the technical and artistic know-how to make those things happen mm -hmm. that's best um, if you have that kind of know-how it's a different it's a different uh, environment entirely and you can build a business exclusively in that environment that works mm -hmm. that it's not facebook ads it's not instagram ads it's not tiktok ads it's it's nothing related to those it's in more web three type spaces and yeah. it's more organic, um, but it takes more of your time and it's more personal interaction and it's more, you know, building, uh, building more of a community. So um, the other thing about that, about that environment is that the tools are not yet transparent to yeah. more of a lay person as the industry develops there'll be more tools that are overlaid on top of the basic technology that make the interface between, you know, you'll be able to read it more easily. You'll be able to buy it more easily and it'll sort of mainstream eyes. But those are, those are things I think about in terms of, of adding value. Gosh, uh, I would love to, it, there's a, I have a hundred ideas for how to make that really cool. Yeah. Exactly. But I have to be realistic about what I can really sign myself up for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's the entrepreneur side of me. I, there, it definitely exists. I love creating businesses and I love walking away from businesses sometimes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they, I get there and I'm like, oh man, the possibilities. Um, so in closing, I will, I will do just a solo intro and I will talk about where people can find you for the most part. Um, I'll drop all of your information in the show notes. Uh, but in closing, where's the one place that you want people to go right now to find out more about you or engage with you? So if you are interested in the thrillers, they're gritty, edgy, starring a female lead, it's spy thrillers and international crime stuff, all sorts of fun. I love that kind of environment. That's at Lars.buzz. And if you're an author interested in learning more about selling directly to your readers in the, in the way that we do it inside of the ammo program. That's ammoauthor.com and ammo is A-M-M-O, which is author marketing mastery through optimization. So those are the two places. And uh, we still have some NFTs to mint. So if there are folks who want to see that process, I'll send that link to you also. And you'll be able to, to do that on the Cardano blockchain through book.io. Awesome. Thank you very much, Lars. It was uh, great to have a longer conversation with you and get behind the scenes a little bit. Uh, and we will talk to you again in a couple of hours as it happens. <laughs>